Okay, so we are um, in the midst of the Kvoda Briosigya. We're doing the chapter of my book, which is called uh, Can You Tell Me How This Rishon Read the Gemara? So the goal is we're going to try and read the Gemara, and then we're going to build towards reading one Rishon that I discovered a couple of years ago after I had taught the Sugya many times, and realized I just had absolutely no way to fit this Rishon with the Sugya. So we'll see if you can figure out a way to do it. And along the way, we'll learn all sorts of interesting things about Gemara, I hope. Okay, so we started um, right at the, the beginning. Of the, be- the beginning was a statement of Yehuda Amarav. So we are in the uh, first and second generation of Amaraim. And he says, somebody who finds uh, shatnes in their garment, a mosekilayim bivigdo, poshtan, has to remove those garments, a filo bashuk, even in public. So we talked about a lot of variables in there that don't matter to us um, right now, whether it's only your garment or somebody else's garments, whether you're wearing undergarments or not wearing undergarments, whether right, whether right, whether you're male or female, all sorts of ways in it. We're going to treat it just as an abstract statement. Uh, X who find right, you know, and all the all those other things are irrelevant to the conceptual pattern of the Gemara. Okay, and the Gemara says, "My Tama, what's the reason?" And it says, "Ein chachmav, ein tfunav, and ein tzal neged Hashem." There's a quote from a pasuk in Mishlei. I asserted last week, and Marty called me on me, but I'm still not going to answer the question this week. Uh, but Marty's entirely right. So, right. So, literally, it's dealing with the context of kavod harav, and uh, right, so we have to figure out what is the kavod, what is the kavod harav here, which is being, um, which is being overridden, um, right, by uh, by chil, by chil Hashem, and we have to figure out what exactly the chilul Hashem is as well. Um, so I'm asserting for now without proving that the original context of that statement are questions in which students um, act to object act to object to someone else's behavior in the presence of their teacher, even though their teacher is not actively objecting. And the Chil Hashem is somebody violating halakha in front of their teacher. And the Kavod Harav is that right is that they are speaking in front of their teacher. And so the the meaning the meaning of the original statement is. It is right. You don't you don't have to worry about speaking in front of your teacher when a chilul Hashem is being created by somebody publicly violating halacha or violating halacha in the presence of your teacher. My assertion is that this is irrelevant to the context of this gemara. Uh, it just happens to be the previous case in which this pasuk in Mishlei was quoted, uh, and that really what matters here is the pasuk in Mishlei. The easiest evidence of that in the sugya is that the phrase chilul Hashem and the phrase kavod harav never appear again in the sugya. Right, every right, the sugya just continually just quotes the pasuk in Mishlei again. Um, so the pasuk in Mishlei is taken, I claim, as standing for the proposition that nothing, no, nothing human has worth when it opposes God's command. And so we take kilayim as a prototype of God's command. We take public nakedness as a prototype of something that gives human beings value. And we say, look, we learn from here, right, um, that. Uh, we learn from here that um, divine command overrides anything that human beings think have worth about themselves, um, right? Any notion of dignity. When you say we learn from here, you mean from Mishlei or from the or from the case? We learn from the the application of Mishlei to the case, right? That, right that we, as opposed to making it a narrow ruling about kilayim, and right and right and and public nakedness, we make it a ruling that's just generally right. It stands for that proposition. Okay, I pointed out last week that this is a almost definitionally false proposition, or at least misleading, because the question that we ask is, what does God want? Of course, we're not going to go against God's command. But the question is, does, right, when God issues commands, do those commands have a built-in, except when it, they violate certain things that, that God gives value to about human beings? Um, right, so in a sense, framing it that way is, uh, right, is misleading. 
But the Gemara chooses to frame it right to phrase it to frame it that way as right as a uh, right as a question of whether there are human values that override divine command. And really, it's just a question of understanding divine commands, right? To what extent do we think that God wanted his, that God doesn't command in such cases? Well, so the way you would frame it that way would differ in a situation where circumstances could be out of your control, and perhaps a bit out of any human control. Yeah. You, have, you now end up with the conflict between. So follow divine command. Okay. Okay, so you want to start arguing, right? I didn't talk it right. You know that maybe, maybe the Gemara doesn't only means maybe maybe we should only rule that halacha, the divine command, overrides human dignity in cases where the human being had some way of preventing it. But what's your criteria for that? Your criteria is going to be what God wants. No, God, 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 God is willing to take right to to allow His command to override your dignity in a case where you had a choice, and God is not willing to override your dignity. I can always reframe it that way, right? I can always reframe it that way. But it's, right, but it's a really interesting thing that the Gemara doesn't seem to have my philosophic qualms, and the Gemara frames it this way as right as if it's a human, uh, it's a human decision to override, right? Theoretically, there would be there would be a human decision to override God's command. But right now, it's not a philosophic problem because guess what, right? We said that it never does. I mean, so we we have instead of a philosophic problem, we have is a justice problem. Right? Why should God's command be willing to right, you know, not take any account human dignity? Is that really our conception of God's command, that it takes away human dignity? And right now we're saying, yeah. Right? Our conception of God's commands are that, that they override human dignity, and that doesn't bother us yet. But it, what I've tried to argue last week, and I'll show again this week, is that this, is a, this I think, is one of the best sugyas to show the Talmud as a rhetorical construction and not as a recording of a live dialogue. So this, right, so this is... It, this, one of the one of the advantages of the thing I haven't shown Marty is that it tells you that the rationale was not part of the original statement. The rationale is the rationale is inserted by the editor deliberately to create this right to create to create this um, you know, this havamina, which I think is obviously going to be false. That um, right that um, there's no value to human dignity at all at all uh, in the system. Uh, that's why it, you know, it imports from somewhere else, as opposed to that's really what, right? That's that's part of the proof that Rava wouldn't actually have said that because why would Rava say in Cholkin There's nothing, nothing to do with anything here. Uh, although I pointed out last time that the art, right, that the Rambam, I think it is, will will say that you take off even your teacher's clothing, <laughs> right? That's how he gets the Kavodarav into the sugya. So you'll have to see if you find that uh, you find that compelling to right. That, that's a way to get Kavodarav into the sugya. Okay, so the structure of the sugya is we're now going to quote um, five. Uh, um, each of which um, seem to stand for a disproof of the proposition, that is, they seem to stand for cases where human dignity, in fact, overrides halakha. And if halakha and divine command are equivalent, so then, right, they contradict the Amoraic statement of Rav Hidu Amorav. Okay, so the, um, right, so the first one is a case, um, right, where uh, where we talked about some of the details last week, where it seems that there is a Kohen who is accompanying a mourner in a situation where the mourner has a choice whether to, on the way back from a funeral, whether to take a Tahor road or a Tameh road. Ordinarily, the Kohen would be permitted to accompany the mourner on the Tahor road, but not be a, 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 
commit permitted to accompany the mourner on the Tamei road, assuming we're talking about Tamei via corpse. Um, the Brighton nonetheless says that the um, right that if the mourner takes the the the, the antecedents are really hard, but the way the Brighton the way we have it is Baba Torah, assuming meaning if the mourner takes the Tahor path, then they meaning the Kohen accompaniers go with them on the Tahor path. Similarly, the, uh, right, and if he comes on the Tamea, Mishum Kvodo. Okay, so Gemara says, Amai, and this is the, the catchphrase, Lema, why don't we say, right? If the Kohen is, is divinely commanded not to become Tamei, and the reason to accompany the mourner is because it's dishonorable to the mourner, for the mourner to have to, to, have to go alone. Now, again, we could challenge this. Like, so who says the mourner is going alone? Maybe there are 150 Israelim there accompanying the mourner. No one will ever notice that you're there. So we have to you know, go with the Gemara's construction of the case that in some way there is a diminution of the mourner's honor if, uh, if, the, mourner, if the mourner is not accompanied. Um, so the Gemara answer is, Rabbi Abba Bevesa Prast Rabbanan. So Rabbi Abba uh, made an okimta, right? He said that the, he, right, he narrowed the scope of the case and he said it's the only time you're allowed to accompany the mourner on Tamei path is if the path is only Tamei Drabanan, the special case of Veta Pras. Uh, right, we then we talk about why a beta pras, which is a field that used to have a uh, right, that used to, used to have a, a corpse, but no longer has an intact corpse, but might have little pieces of corpse uh, scattered around, scattered around throughout it. Um, so I pointed out that Rabbi Abba is an Amora, whereas the editor of the Talmud presumably is later. And so when this brayta is quoted, it's not quoted as if there's a live moment where we think, oh my goodness, we have disproven the uh, we have disproven you know our initial thesis. It's a literary structure, which is right where the, the goal of asking the question is to insert the answer. Right? Everyone knows the answer is coming. Right? There's no suspense that way because the answer, because the Breita and its accompanying and its, and its accompanying Okimta were a package that are being that are, that are being quoted, and it just happens that we add punctuation into the package with suspense, question mark, exclamation point, and then right and then and then answer point. Okay, uh, right. The right, uh, it could very well be. That um, the reason Rabbi Abba came up with Okimta originally was because of that question, or not? Uh, I pointed out last week there was some controversy about it. That um, that right. So it looks like say for, for pedagogic purposes, sometimes yeah, I think that students think that the Talmud makes up Okimtas, and then they lose faith in the in the integrity of the system because heck, uh, how can you say right? It's obvious you go you can go with the mourner. Right? How, where do you get this idea? It's only talking about the Rabbanans. If it's only talking about the Rabbanans, should have said so. Um, so I pointed out that the the case is very peculiar, right? Because there's a much more obvious case if you thought human human dignity overrode, uh, even the dignity of the mourner overrode the um, overrode the Cohen's up mitzvah not the up for prohibition to become tummy, The Cohen should have been able to go to the funeral. Right? Constructing the case as on the way back from the funeral must mean right, mean, right must mean even when, the, when no one argues that mourners can that Cohen that Cohen can that Cohen can accompany mourners to funerals must mean that there's a difference between the funeral and the road, and it's very hard to argue that the road is more covered than the funeral, and therefore it seems there must be a difference in the level of tumor. Right, so right, so I th- right, so I think that the okimta is plausible, and I think it's also important to understand the okimta was not probably not constructed in order to um, in order to meet the to meet the challenge, the Okinto was probably constructed to explain the case. Right? Why, is it, why is it on the way back as opposed to at the funeral? So the answer is, it must be talking about where it's a beta pras. Okay, so that just you know, what it should have. So we had the, se- the second case, which is the Rebelezer Bart Sadok, who's a coin, uh, said that we used to jump over coffins in order to greet Jewish kings, and then there's a whole separate section about Jewish kings and non-Jewish kings that we're going to ignore also. Um, 
but I don't think it matters here, but you can argue with me later. Um, and that again seems to prove, right? So that, so that seems to improve, to prove that you can, for the honor of kings, right? You're going to greet kings. For the honor of kings, you, Kohanim, can violate their, uh, their prohibition against becoming Tameh. And the Gemara gives the same kind of answer. Uh, the Gemara says that it's following Rava, and Rava, Rava took the position that coffins, uh, jumping over coffins for a coin is only a prohibition to Rabbanon and not a prohibition to Oraita. Because uh, what would be the, why would a coin become tame by jumping over a coffin? It become tame because the coin's body is as if it's a tent, and right, and therefore the tumor rises to the top of the tent. Um, but if the coffin itself is a prior tent, so putting a tent over a tent is not a problem. And Rava said that um, right that gen- the halacha is that it's there's a t- that it's considered a tent if there's even a tefach distance between the top of the corpse and the lid of the coffin. And and the, generally there is in fact such a such um, such a gap, and therefore Dioraita, you could you could rely on rove and jump over the right and jump over the and jump over the coffin. But the rabbi said no, don't rely on that. Right, you're not allowed to do it because um, this there's always a chance that in this particular case the body uh, the body occupies too much space in the in the in the coffin. Is our original question framed as what to do or how to think of? conflict between halakha and independent value. I don't know what I mean here in terms of non-halakhic or non-halakhically established value. Yeah. Versus a conflict between two halakhot. That's correct. Right. You can't say that's correct in our question. (laughs) (laughs) You're probably, we are framing it as a conflict between a halakha and a value as opposed to... the, The value in the case of uh, coffin jumping, yeah, is not becoming tem- well. The, not the, 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 the value of greeting the king, greeting the okay. king. So there's no halacha that says one must. Okay, so ve- right, so very good, right. So this is right part of the same paradox I pointed out initially, right? That we framed that we framed it as if it's a conflict between divine command and some independent value, but it turns what we discover is that the halacha itself recognizes these values, and so really we're just having a conversation within halacha. Right. What does God want? Which takes precedence. That's right. You're always you know, conflicting halachot. Yeah. The halachot about kavod seem to be framed here as gener- you know as a generic act in accordance with this value, mm-hmm. as opposed to right. You know, if there were a brayta that said you must go greet kings, mm-hmm. right, that would be much less interesting. Right. Right. Because that right. So the answer is no. That right, we, there's there's this brayta that said we used to greet kings. And the Gemara says, "Ah, oh, why did you use the Greek kings? You used the Greek kings because we thought it was the right thing to do to show kavod to the king. And then why would you be allowed to do that? Well, because, right, because of kavod. But, but once we say it's the Rabbanan, once we say it's only rabbinic, so then we can say, you know, actually, you know what? That's just a rabbinic decision. And now we can write, so it's not actually a conflict between halacha and a value, right? Really, really, when the rabbis set up the laws, the rabbis took these things into account. And since the rabbis created the prohibition, so they could build the exceptions, right? So part of the, at this stage, at this stage, if we understand the, um, so the second, right, this language has really, because of the honor of kings, the rabbis never made such a decree. So that sounds very much like we're making a claim that this is not a conflict between halacha and values. This is a case where the law itself has already incorporated the value. But if you could find a case where that was not true, even rabbinic law might trump, 
right, might, might trump human dignity. And in fact, there are rabbinic laws that explicit, right? There are times when the rabbis punish you, and when they punish you, they take away your dignity. There are times when the rabbis punish you by depriving you of dignity, right? There's a, right, the Gemara says in, that uh, if people got their carbon Pesach tummy, then they would take it, they would burn it in public in order to embarrass you. So, right, so this, right, so it's possible to say, right, you know, that the narrowest reading so far is that, right, if we set up our abstract equation, formal halakha, in which we understand to be divine command, always beats values. But when the, right, but um, we should be aware that sometimes in rabbinic law, they incorporated values into it. But when they didn't, formal halakha always beats values. That would be the narrowest reading of what we had so far. Yes, sure. So this Mishum Kahn law from Rogaz Rebbehem Rabbanan. Yeah. That's that's saying that because of the covenant, because because this value of, of reading the king is recognized by the rabbis, they never made this gazera that that you had to worry that this specific coffin uh, might not have a tefach just in between the body. Right. That seems a particularly weird weird idea. No, that that in advance they knew that the the problem of coffin jumping to greet a king was going to come up, and so. So maybe we'll say they created a default, right? Whenever the rabbis make a decree, the default is that when it conflicts with royal honor, they don't intend their decree to, to apply. Uh, right now, they also seem to say, you know, then we have, to, we have to claim to do the same thing, that they said the same thing about mourner's honor. Right, because right? that's the first case, right? So what we, what we could do it that way. Right? We could say that, right, we're still... We still have a principle that whatever is the formal law is interpreted as a divine command. Values are wishy-washy things. Values always lose to formal law. And we believe that's because formal law represents God's will, which is not obvious. We could just say values lose to formal law. But we don't say that. We say values lose to form formal law because formal law expresses God's, uh, expresses God's command. And it just happens that the rabbis, uh, the rabbis chose sometimes to incorporate those values into formal law because... It's only rabbinic law anyway, so there, right, there's no, there's nothing that, there's nothing there except you know, except uh, values that anyway. Well, we could say that. Okay, I pointed out last time just for fun that uh, this case also you might think it's a you know, well, how can they claim that it's only talking about the rabbanon? So I argued because you're jumping over coffins. Right? In order to make this case real, you'd have to claim that there's a Beit Midrash. Um, the Beit Midrash is only one exit. That exit is through a mausoleum. The mausoleum has the, the mausoleum has no aisles in it, so the only way to get out is by jumping over coffins. There's a public road right outside the only exit, which is through the mausoleum, and there are king, there are there, there are kings passing by regularly, and therefore, that we used to regularly, right? you knew we used to jump over coffins in order to get in order to great king. At some point, somebody should have opened an exit <laughs> the other way, or made an aisle, or something, right, or something like that. So I suggested that the. Um, and the Gemara Sanhedrin, which talks about cases in Allah that never happened, never will. So the two, right, two, the two famous cases, as opposed to Tzarat of houses, which doesn't get talked about as much, the two famous cases are the, the Ben Sarira Moreh, the rebellious son, and the Erni Dachat, the uh, idolatrous city. And in each of those cases, there's a Brighton with a Tanitic position, which says um, it never happened, it never will happen. And then a character named Rabbi Yonatan Amora says, Ani, Ani I saw him in the case of the Ben Sarira Moreh, it's via Shafti Al-Kivro, and I sat on his grave. In the case of the Unidachas, Aniri Tivyashafti El Tilo, I sat on the tell where the city used to be. And the problem always is that Rabbionatan, assuming he's the usual Rabbionatan, is a Kohen. So Kohenim should not be sitting on. Right? The second problem is chronological. There is no, in the time of the Moraim, there is no capital punishment, right? no capital jurisdiction. There's certainly no Yurni Dachat, right? There's, so on what, right, on what basis could he, um, 
On what basis can he say he said this? So my suggestion is that this is just a way that Kohanim liked to talk. When Kohanim wanted to say it, right? Kohanim liked to talk about their kuna. This is still true in some cases. And um, and so when they wanted to make it, you know, say something very emphatic, they would say, you know, I'm as sure of this as if I had become tummy. <laughs> Um, and so that understands, that's why Rabbi Yonatan says, I sat on the, I, I sat on the grave, and that's why Rabbi Elizabeth Sadek says we used to jump over coffins. Uh, right, it's just a way of Kohanim making it, and so then when they're constructing that case, so the only case you construct is a case which is with coffins, which are only Durabanan, so he probably means it on purpose. It means he couldn't, right, it's, it's really saying, as true as this, as if I had become Tamei Durabanan, <laughs> but not, uh, right, but not, um, not Tamei Durabanan. Um, okay, that's where we were last time, so now we get up to number three. All right, Tashma. So this seems like the right the um, the the, uh, the the big whopper. And again, so you can see that it's a constructed sugya that we didn't present this first because we presented this right the first, and the last two would have been very anticlimactic. Tashma gadol et lotas. Whether you have the ed or not is a, is a question. Lotas is great, and what is its greatness? What is right? Its greatness is that it pushes aside a negative commandment in the Torah. Now, again, the author of this sugya knew this before we started. That there was a bright out there which said, Kvodabriot is so great, human dignity is so great that it pushes aside a negative commandment in the Torah. And nonetheless, started with a proposition, right? Let's say, Ein Chachmav, Ein Tfunav, Ein Tzal, Neged Hashem. Okay, so we set it up this way. So how could there be a bright that says this? Doesn't it contradict our basic principle? So Tirgim of Shua, Kameh Rav Kahana, and again, this is not in response to this question. This is a, uh, right, this is a prior dialogue that's being incorporated in the Suga. Um, Right, when it's right, it's only talking about the it's only talking about the lotase of lotasur. So the first thing we have to ask is right, is this a, a stretch or not? So the text that we have, we'll see later the Rishalmi's text, but the text that we have this bright in the Bavli, it doesn't say So you can either interpret it as it pushes aside any lotase in the Torah, even though that, or you can say interpret it a lotase in the Torah. So Ghana says that this this is you know this is a statement that is deliberately provocative, but then intended to be drawn back. Uh, uh, right? That it pushes aside one lota say in the Torah. Now I have to figure out which lota say in the Torah. So the answer is the lota say of lotasur. So lotasur is right, don't stray from what they say, what they say left or right. Uh, so now we have a dialogue, which I think there are two ways of reading, although not clear the second one that anyone else thinks exists. Um, Yorah says, they laughed at Rav Barshva for saying this. They laughed at him by saying, the law of the Lotasur is deoraita. And Rav Kana responds by saying, this is a, um, right, a great man said this, don't laugh at him. All, all rabbinic matters were attached to the law of the Lotasur. So we have to try to figure out like, what's the Havamina and what's the Maskana here and why do they, right, why do they laugh at him? And when they laugh at him, why do they say Lotasur Lotasur Dio Right? What's the uh, what's funny about it? It's not a claim that that's weird, you're making up a no kimta, because then Dio right makes no sense. They just say they laughed at him, it says every Lotase. So either they laugh at him because they don't believe either it's either they believe that this that Lotasur is not really Dioraita, and therefore it can't really be described as a Lotase Shabatora in this context at least. Or they think that Lotasur is just like every other Deoraita. And since it's just like every other Deoraita, 
the Okimta is right. The Okimta is pointless because why would this be different than any other? Okay, that's the way most people read it. Right? They write to him and say, "Why you haven't solved anything?" In that case, the response is uh, Rav Kana's response is "Kol mili derabanan asmechinhu alav delosasur." So the word asmachta is a problematic term, uh, right? Asmachta refers to some kind of quasi-relationship between a rabbinic law and a, bibli- and, and a biblical text, uh, right? When, there, when you have what seems to be a biblical derivation of rabbinic law, and the enemy say, nah, not really. It's, right? it's not really what the verse means. We just sort of stuck it on. Um, so you might say, okay, so it's just a mnemonic, right? I generally am you know, most comfortable saying it's just a mnemonic. But you have to be aware that there are positions among Rishonim that say no, that a, a law that is attached to a verse has more authority than a regular rabbinic law. Now, you could always then say, ah, that's because the rabbi, when the rabbi is attached it to a verse, they were deliberately giving it more, more status than if they didn't attach it to a verse. But usually it's not the rabbis, the original rabbis making the decree to attach it to a verse. It's somebody coming along later. So I, I leave the term asmachta as a mess. But here, right, so that's our structure verse, okay, right? The Gemara, there's a brighter that says lo tasur, there's a, a challenge. Either Lotasur is too weak or too right, or is just like every other Diaraisa. The solution is that Lotasur also refers to laws that are really rabbinic. May, right? Maybe it means that it refers to rabbinic laws that have some more connection to Diaraisas than others. Um, really hard, right? You know, there's, the Gemara talks about things that have an Ikarmina Torah, the Rabbanans have an Ikarmina Torah, the Rabbanans that don't have an Ikarmina Torah. I learned from Rabbi Saul Berman years ago when I was like the, uh, he taught me about predictive principles. When somebody gives you a principle, they say, explain this data. So then you ask yourself, okay, right, if I have another case, does this rule give me any evidence at all about what to do in the following case? And if it doesn't, then it's not really an explanation. Uh, right, so he, he used that, uh, he taught that to me in the context of whether women are, whether women are really exempt from time-bound commandments. Right, if you start, right, you know, does it, if you just if you just started with the principle women are exempt from time bound commandments, would you get right? Would you actually get the halacha that we have it? The answer is no. Women are actually obligated to more time bound commandments than they're exempt from. Uh, so it's right. So it's more likely a mnemonic for the for a set of a, a set of mitzvot from which women are exempt than the explanation for the reason. It could be this the explanation. Just there are lots of reasons not, or it could be it's just a uh, it's just a mnemonic. I use in the um, I think the Gemara sometimes challenges somebody. And the, the point of the series of challenges, which yield a teku, like we don't know the answer. So sometimes teku is an attack because the result, of, if right, what they've done is they've proven that you can't answer any questions based on your rule. And you can't answer any questions based on your rule. What uses your, right? What uses your rule, right? That's, uh, okay. So um, I don't, yeah, I, I don't, th- I have not found any um, any convincing account of. The differences among Durabanans based on their relationship to Durabanans, although I have tried a couple of times, and it might be that within specific thinkers you can find something that resembles more of a uh, more of an actual more of an actual case. But be that as it may, the effect of right the the last line again is a mishum kivodo sharu rabbanan. It's because of because of of his honor. Now, whose honor is it? Yeah, I think it has to be human honor, right? Hypothetically, human honor and not uh, not God's honor. I think that would be cheating. Uh, so I think the simple way of reading it is that we have now taken the two previous rules and we take the t- two previous cases and the two previous cases we both, we resolve them in each case by saying there's an okimta that says it's only talking about the Rabbanan and now we've made that, we have justified our okimta 
by saying, actually, there's a general rule. And the general rule really is the rabbis built in an exemption for Kvot HaBriot every time, right, every time, every time that, uh, it, that it conflicts with their law. So now, instead of a, right, now we really have two propositions. One proposition is biblical law, the right the law, beats Kvot HaBriot. And the counter proposition is that Kvot HaBriot beats, uh, right, beats, um, beats um, rabbinic law. And well, the easy way out of this is to say, and that doesn't conflict with the problem of there's nothing that stands against God because that's all internal rabbinic decisions. And so we've solved that problem. And we've also, along the way, we've, right, we, we have implicitly made the claim that all forms of human dignity are alike because we said that we started with honor of mourners and we went to honor of kings and now we're going to generate, generalize human dignity. Right? So what we really just set up is that rabbinic law, uh, rabbinic law sort of works with an a priori principle that human dignity, that we're not going to infringe on human dignity, however defined, right? That's, and it's an interesting thing, right? You know, why is that? That's an animating feature of rabbinic law. It's a pride. It's a, an assumption of all rabbinic law, even though we are now claiming that it has absolutely no value in divine law. Right? Where did the rabbis get this value from? Uh, well, again, we can solve it by saying now we're just talking technically that you know, whenever... Whenever God chooses to command, then in human conceptions of human dignity have no role, right? We can still solve it that way. Right? Maybe God cares deeply about human, about, uh, about human dignity, but we presume that when God cares deeply about human dignity, that he builds it into the law. And if God didn't build it into the law, so then, right, we still say that, human, that, you know, that nothing, nothing, nothing humanly conceived of outside the framework of formal halacha has any value in formal halacha. I guess that's how we can set it up at this point. Yes? I was just thinking, um, one could have many discussions about the difference between your feeling of dignity and whether I give you, whether I act respectfully to you. Um, is that this, does that distinction matter for our purposes? Here? So I'm arguing, right, that the nature of this sugya is to treat everything as pure abstractions. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, there are no differences in degree within the sugya. Mm -hmm. right, no, right, no, right, nobody, right, it doesn't say, well, you know, great dishonor to kings overrides rabbinic halakha, but minor dishonor to kings doesn't. Mm -hmm. Right, the, the nature of the sugya is to create, is, is, is abstraction. And that's, you know, a generally interesting question. Do the, do the rabbis think abstractly or not? This seems to be, you know, an interesting case where right where they're only thinking abstractly right? mm -hmm. there are a thousand ways you can distinguish each case you could you could frame each case but they're setting it up they they began by assigning an abstraction as the meaning of the opening statement and they respond by treating every counter case as an abstraction uh, now what that will mean for the way we do law afterwards is an interesting question but in the context of the sugya i don't think that I don't think the, the you know I, I don't think that what kind of human dignity it is matters. I don't think how intense human dignity is matters. Right? None of that matters right now at, at all, and none of it will matter. I don't believe throughout the circuit. Uh, right? I think that it's a, you know really interesting question as to what extent uh, you know because they're thinking they're, they're, the cases are concrete, and there's always a debate you know when you have a when you have casuistic thinkers right who are arguing through cases are they thinking conceptually or not. So here I think is a sugya where you know, it's very clear that they set it out as an abstraction and they never allow any of the details to affect the abstraction.
Okay, so if that you know, that could be someone's doctorate for all I know. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think you know, I don't, you know, the sugya that we that we enjoy tend to be neatly abstract, uh, like the famous sugya because they're the easiest. They're the sugya which uh, which are regular in patterns and all right. So whether they're typical, and that's really how the thing people think throughout is an interesting question. But you know, the, I, I think that a lot of the and you can also claim, of course, you know, that I'm just imposing order. Uh, on the sugya, but I think in this case, like it's the, the structure of the sugya is to make is an abstraction, and then you know we literally we keep repeating that abstraction in all the other cases, and we never say that case is different because of a concrete reason. We only say that case is different because of an abstract reason, um, right? So I think the sugya functions purely abstractly. So when when we read uh, the parsha that we're supposed to honor our parents, yeah. That's a commandment. Yeah. Um, but it's also the words being used here, and we're thinking of it as a non-commandment value. Interesting. So I talked to the first week, but it's a great it's a great way of framing it that um, that you have a question in terms of whether kibudava aim is an intensification of right, of human dignity, or is an entirely independent thing. It might be as a literary point. Might be interesting that the one kind of kavod that never shows up in the sugya is kibud avayim, because <laughs> <laughs> right, that would be too easy, right? Yeah. Right to make you know that, that would that would blow up the fiction at the beginning that we're actually talking about whether we can go against God's will, mm -hmm. because God's will is so strong there. Now you could then say, ah, that proves that kibud avayim is not actually just a subset of human dignity, but is an entirely is an entirely separate feature. Uh, right, you know, and I could set up build whole universes based on the claim that you know that kibbutz aim is not about human dignity at all. Kibbutz aim is about three partners in creation and right, whatever, whatever you want. I don't think it'd be true though. Uh, I, I just, I my tendency is it's probably you know, that mentioning kibbutz aim would blow up the sugya because it would right because it would expose the uh, it would expose the fiction of the opening question, um, which is a great point. It's a great point. Uh, maybe we'll do it. Not to say it's not in the book. We can talk about another sugya which plays with different concepts of kavod and, and uh, to set this up. Okay, excellent. Okay, so now we right now we have gotten through the first three, and the end of the first three, we're really you know we've just simplified it to like the, just the only three values: the right to law, rabbinic law, and kavod abriyot. Kavod abriyot comes right in the middle. But philosophically, we have maintained our initial claim that if it's formal halacha, you can't. It's formal halacha that is framed as the oraita then values no longer play a role at all. Okay, so now we get to the next case, the Tashma. So you have a verse which says, V'hit alamta mehem. So V'hit alamta mehem is an odd verse. Uh, where it plays off an ambiguity. It says, do not, right, do, the, the verse says, do not see your friends, uh, right, your neighbor, or your neighbor, your neighbors, whatever you want to call it, your fellows, um, animals straying, and hide yourself from it. So this is one of the things that you, know, that you like teaching kids about uh, syntactical ambiguity. Does it mean do not see right? Do not see your friend's animal and hide yourself from it, <laughs> or does that mean do not see your friend's animal and hide yourself from it? <laughs> okay, right. This is, right. This is the version of the alligator. The alligator eating the ant, whatever, the ant, whatever it may be. Okay, so the uh, the rabbis take advantage of this syntactic ambiguity, and they say right. The ambiguity is there. Is they're both true. And they're just and right, and they're and they're and they're dead tell you that you have to choose among the uh, among among the among the cases. 
So I think you could probably argue also that it really means is they understand that the primary meaning is you're not supposed to hide yourself from it. So the default setting, right? The default setting is you're not allowed, right? You're not allowed to look away when your neighbor's thing is missing. But the ambiguity is is a fun way which God built in the notion that there are exceptions. Okay, we saw a similar thing. Those who were here on Shabbos Mincha, uh, right? That one of one of the two drushos, the initial drusha about whether a um, whether a Kohen is allowed to um, delay looking at a nega in order to avoid messing up somebody's uh, right, somebody's happy week of week of, uh, week of nuptial happiness. So you might say, "Biyom bo." Well, there are days in which you right, there are days in which you look at it, and days in which you don't look at it. Right, so this is a genre of midrash. Okay, so now you look at what are the cases you look at it, and what are the cases you not look at it. So Hakeitzad, right? So Hakeitzad is asking for um, illustrations of the of, right, of the prior abstraction. So if you're a Kohen and the missing and the missing animal is in a cemetery, so then you don't have to go get the you don't have to go get the uh, go get the animal. So that probably doesn't take us this verse. That's just basic law. Basic law is you don't violate lotases in order to fulfill essays. Uh, now there are there's there's a variant rule about that, which is that we we actually say assay docha lotase, that when there's a conflict between a positive and a negative commandment, then you do follow the positive commandment. But then we right that that is a principle of midrash halacha, not a principle of action, um, really. So that's and there are all sorts of straits about that. You know, we can spend lots of time just talking about why why is there a principle I say do say when in practice you're never supposed to do a say the violent say. So treat that treat that as a special case, and the and the, the default case is the default setting is that you don't violate a negative commandment to fulfill yes. And so probably this is. While this is true, right? If you're coming with a list of cases where you don't get the lost object, it's true that this is on it, but it's not true that the ambiguity was built in to teach us this because we knew it already anyway. Okay, the last case is Shaitam Melachtom Rubami Shal Chaviro, which is um, when you, if you take in your, your neighbor's lost animal, um, you're entitled to, uh, to recoup your expenses. Um, right for for taking care, of. we don't we don't we don't require you. So, what happens if it inevitably the um, the expenses will will um, will be more than the animal itself is worth? And what happens if the expenses of recovering right of recovering the animal will be more than will be, will be more than it's worth? So the answer is that we can do that in terms of billing your time. Right, we can have we can all sorts of lawyer jokes or whatever we want to do it. But the answer is the purpose of the mitzvah. Is the purpose of the mitzvah is that you're not right, is to save your friends your friends money not to not to, not to uh, make money for yourself and therefore in such cases there's no mitzvah. Okay, that probably also doesn't take this verse. It's probably built into the nature of the mitzvah. So it's the middle case, which is most likely the um, the case that actually is being derived from the syntactic ambiguity. The middle case is if the um, person chasing the lost object is a zakain, the zakain could mean elderly, but more likely means a leader in the community. And there's some, right, and it's enalafich vodo. So enalafich vodo, I like to think about it just like, the, you know, that retrieving it is, um, will require actions that are beneath, right, that are beneath your dignity. You know, like you, know, you have a, you know, an elder all dressed up and you have to chase somebody's animal through a, through a mud, through a mud, through a mudslide. But usually the Rishonim usually give it differently that it's a, it's the kind of thing that if it were your own, you wouldn't bother picking it up. 
right? It would be underrated. People would think of you, you know, as you know that that's not like you know you should you're a rich guy. You shouldn't be bending over to pick up pennies in the street. So the question is, Ray, what about picking up somebody else's penny? Right? So the answer is right. But be that as it may, since we're not interested in the um, right, we're treating it as an abstraction. The abstraction here is. Here is a person, and that person has some kind of dignity. It seems like we're not going to distinguish, although that's right conceptually, it's very important to distinguish between intrinsic dignity and social dignity. Right? So once again, we're fudging, right? We just went from Kvoda Briot, right? And now we're going to talk about Kvoda Zakain. And Kvoda Zakain is probably a form of dignity that depends on position. So even though it's a form of dignity that depends on position and is not, and it's not intrinsic, and by the way, in terms of our initial claim, right, we could have said that intrinsic human dignity is um, right, could have briot, we could have said is not a question of going to human values against God because intrinsic human dignity is what comes from being a Salam Elohim and really it's really is honoring God. Whereas social dignity is purely right, it's purely a human construct. So we could have made a sharp distinction between intrinsic and social dignity, but we don't again. We just treat social dignity as exactly the same as all forms of dignity in the context of the sugar. So we say is right the, the right, says, so if you're a Zakane and it is beneath your social dignity to fulfill the mitzvah of returning lost animals, you don't have to. Separate question whether you, whether you should or you shouldn't. But you don't have to. So the Gemara asks, okay, why don't you have to? Right? There's a halakha, you have to return lost objects. So here the fiction gets exposed again, right? Because what, what, it's a medrash halakha. Right? We're claiming that the Torah put this amb- syntactic ambiguity in to teach us that you don't have to return it. And yet the Gemara says, let's say there's no wisdom against God, right? No, we're trying to figure out what God means. So, right, so, here, so here the proposition that there's no wisdom against God would have to mean that when the right to law is given to human discretion, right, human beings should not consider human dignity as a factor. That's a much dicier proposition. Why not? If God consider, right, If it's part of God's original system, Right? What should we take into account? Right? The Torah says, sometimes you do it and sometimes you don't. And it has to be a case which, got, right, the whole point of it is it has to teach me something that isn't obvious from the rest of halacha. Because if it were obvious, I wouldn't need this ambiguity. So what am I supposed to do? Right? Is it better if I do it arbitrarily? And I just, right, take a rule, every tenth person doesn't have to pick up lost objects. Uh, you don't have to pick up lost objects that are green. Right, so right, so here we expose the here we expose the fiction much more sharply. Right, with, right, when you have the attempt to claim that ein chachmav ein tunav and means that human beings are not even allowed to consider values when interpreting God's will. And that can't be. There is no other way to deal with right, to deal with discretionary cases except on the basis of values. And to claim that dafka we should exclude the value of human right, the values of dignity when the halacha builds them in all over the place. It's a very odd thing. But okay, we're going to take it, we take it straightforwardly. So Gemara answers, which is a, you know, a wonderful answer, Shani Hatam, no, that, right, um, right, that case is different. Okay, so here we have to, the terms I always use for this are Binyan Av and Chidush. Not everyone uses those terms, but I'm going to use them that way, right? So whenever you have a law, a, a legal detail, right, a, you know, something, something is that, like a, you know, a, Something that could be a general principle attached to a specific case. And the Torah only tells it us, to, to us in one, in, with regard to one law. So the question is, do we take that law and say, aha, the Torah said it to here, that must be a paradigm, the same thing, right? We should apply the same abstraction to every other law. Or do we say, 
the Torah said it here, ah, obviously, the Torah said it here because it's not true everywhere else. It had to say it here. Right? So, that's, so when we say, we're, when it becomes a, para, a paradigm case, that's called a binyan av. When we say it's an exception, that's called a chidush. And the difference between them, and here I, people get in trouble with me, but I think it's right, there is is purely based on your prior intuition. If you thought, right, if this is what you expected anyway, so then it's a binyan av. And if it's not what you expected, then it's a chidush. I don't think there's any other, that's what one of my prime, prime ways of teaching students that you can't, there's no such thing as learning halacha without preconceptions because halacha is built off, right, off preconceptions. You know, it's like, just like suspense, right? Suspense only works, right, because of certain, right, because of certain expectations. Um, okay. So the Gemara, so the Gemara's havamina here is, the halacha is different for me than these. So then the law is constructed by, you know, by, a, by, a, by a process where all the people who get votes, whoever that may be, right, put their intuitions together. Um, but, and so we might argue that in order to be, a, you know, part of what makes you qualified to be, to, right, to be a legislator is that your intuitions have been tested and, right, and are treated as legitimate by the other people mm-hmm. in the system. But, um, yeah, that's, that's fair. But, um, yeah, but it, in principle, right, you know, I can't tell you that the text interprets itself. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So the, Gemara's, so the Gemara's first approach is, so right now let's, we have to get the whole structure of the Surya again together, right? So we start off by saying shotness, right? You have to take your clothes, you have to take your clothes off, right? And I should point out, just cheating, by the way, there is rabbinic shotness. We could have just solved the whole problem <laughs> by saying, <laughs> right, you know, but okay, right, but um, okay. So the um, so the we're assuming that we have this paradigm case of uh, or we made a wor- worse problem by saying it's rabbinic shotness. I guess even if you have to take your clothes even for rabbinic shotness, that would have solved the whole problem. We're assuming right now that we officially say you have to take shot you have to take your, your shotness clothing off in the marketplace. That means halacha always beats dignity. Then we we basically said, oh, that only was biblical shotness, not rabbinic shotness. But we still have biblical shotness as our as our primary case. And now we have a counter case, which is Hang on a sec. Why do you have to take your clothes off in public if you don't even have to? You don't even have to pick up somebody else's lost object. So the answer is, ah, you know what? This rule about not picking up lost objects is a chiddush. The fact that the Torah has to tell me that I'm allowed to that I'm allowed to ignore someone else's lost objects teaches me that general human dignity has no right has no role. Okay, that's what Shani Hatam. That case is different. In that case, is unique. Because in that case, there was a verse that gives us the authority to, pl- to, allow, to, to let human dignity in, but you couldn't do it anywhere else. So our abs- right, yeah. Question on the case of the poet. Yeah. The other two where human dignity comes in. Yeah. But the case of the Vita and the case of the poet is different between the right of values. Um, Right, so that's why I argue that those cases are not really derived from the verse. Those cases are known previously, and right, and the only case that's derived from the verse is the case of the, the Zakain. because we already knew that a coin couldn't. Right, coin. Not that a coin is, doesn't have to. A coin isn't allowed to. We, you're not allowed to take the lost object; it's going to cost somebody else money. Right. The chiddush is that you don't have to um, do this. Right. That's that's exactly right. Okay. So. The Gemara says, "Shani hatem dechsiv lehitvantem mehem," and then the Gemara says, "V'ligamar mina." Why do you think this is a chiddush? Let's make it a paradigm instead. Why is it counterintuitive to you? Right now, that's a big, 
that's a you know that's a big question because that like you know implicates the whole opening framework. But all of a sudden, it's not so intuitive, right? We think right, we think this is a paradigm, and then where it comes like now we the Gemara says, you know what? When we we do the paradigm, we still can't, we can't do the paradigm. You know, it, it doesn't expand infinitely. It expands until the first reasonable point where we can cut off its expansion. So we're going to say, you know what, this is a paradigm, but the paradigm only extends so far, the Gemara says, as mamona. We don't move from money to ritual. And therefore, just because I'm allowed to look away when someone's lost object and thereby, right, and thereby not fulfill a mitzvah that is related to money doesn't mean that, I'm, that human dignity has any standing against a ritual mitzvah. Eh. You know, why you know it's a it's a fine formal distinction, but what's left of our opening thesis that nothing that now human dignity has value against God only but but only has value against God when God is talking about money. <laughs> why? And so that, right, so we have a a technical establish a, a weighting or a precedent or a choice hierarchy. Yeah, oh, we can set up formally, right? Now, right? I, with, my, you know, with my high school students, I set up with equations, right? So, halacha deoraita isura is greater than is greater than which is greater than halacha deoraita of mamona, right? And maybe which you know, which is either equal or greater to than halacha drabanan, right? Now, do we then go back and say maybe halacha drabanan is also only true, right? Does this override the previous distinctions? And it turns out that that all you know that uh, now because we override halacha drabanan about isura in those cases also, yeah, it's only deoraita, only right, yeah. I just think like, but there's nothing, there's nothing, there's no principle left anymore. We've just decided it's intuitive to expand it. Mm-hmm. Right? We're making it, right? We're making it a bit enough, right? But then we say, okay, but formally, even when it's intuitive, we can only expand it to other things like this law. Mm-hmm. So that's not, it, there's no, there's no principle anymore that, that, that stops it. Now we're just playing, you know, now we're just, we're just playing Talmud, you know, figuring out what the parameters are. Okay, right, so we have one more. The Gemara says Tashma. Now this is a really, really complicated brayta, and we're going to just do it one way probably, and then we'll we'll see if the the many ways of understanding it actually affect the thesis that we have. The Gemara says Velachoto. So the um, right, so somebody, either a Kohen Gadol or an Azir, we have to figure out, is um, right, is um, not allowed, is not allowed to become Tamei even for a even for a sister. His sister dies for the funeral, or for the burial. Okay, so so we have to figure out like how we get from that word So there's a whole list of relatives, and each of the relatives has to get us another case. So we're gonna write. So it's very hard to figure out exactly what case we're talking about. All right. So right? If we have, if it turns out the matter, we're gonna have to go back and do a Rashi and Tosfot and all, right? all the people who try to to get this midrash halacha to make uh, to make sense. It ends up being, according to Rashi, it's based on a midah of midrash halacha called the im eno inyan. The im eno inyan is a great one. It says, well, if this doesn't make any sense in context, let's apply it somewhere else. And <laughs> <laughs> right? so you can try. Right? I, I I was very proud of the sure I had making sense of this one, but it's still you know, you know prima facie is a very hard thing to. Uh, just, right, to get to be coherent. So, so what is what is the purpose of including the specific case of the sister in right in this in the context of this pasuk? So we have it. So we answer it without giving a right. We just give it. We just answer it by giving cases without giving a rule. 
So Haresha Halech Lishchot et Pischo. So he's going to shech his carbon Pesach, the Lamul et Beno, or to circumcise his son, the Shema Shemet Lomet. And on his way to doing to doing these mitzvot, which are the only mitzvot I say that you get Kares for not doing by a specific time. Right, the carbon Kar- Pesach has to be brought by Pesach, and then and the Brit Milah has to be done by the right, on the eighth day. So you're on your way to do these mitzvot, which you will get karate for not doing, and you discuss and you hear that one of your relatives has died. Uh, now, if you are now, wh- how this relates to Brit Milah, why you can't do both of Brit Milah is an interesting question. Let's take focus on the carbon Pesach for now. You can't bring a carbon Pesach when you're Tameh. So if you go bury your your relative, you're not going to be able to bring your carbon Pesach. So should you? Uh, right, should you should the the positive mitzvah of burying your relative um, take precedence in the sense that it will that you do it even though you know it will create a situation in which you can't fulfill your mitzvah to bring a carbon pesa? Okay, so the, the fact that he has pesach shenu to make that. Yeah, also ignoring the maybe pesach is different because right because he has pesach shenu and he only circumcised the day after, right? You don't get karis anymore if you circumcise on the ninth day, right? It's true. You're liable for karis if. Clarifying yeah. here to his sister, because the uh, verse says explicitly, as long as she hasn't been married out of the family, laughing tamar. Yes, yeah, so I have to figure out which verse. It shows that right. That, that's, I'm fudging everything right now. Okay. Exactly right, because we're hitting our end. If it turns necessary, we'll do it in detail next time. Or that's the second thing that I owe Marty and you, right? All, all of you, okay? Right? That the limits, to, yeah, that um, I'm trying to do it simply first, and then we'll, we'll complicate it. Okay. So there we have this case. So So it teaches you that no, right? You're allowed to you, right, you go on doing your mitzvah say sheyeshbo karet. You go on and you leave the you leave your relative. Uh, you do not you are not you do not have to engage in bearing a relative if that will mean you can't bring your carbon pesach. So I might suggest I might think that the same rule applies to a mate mitzvah. A mate mitzvah. Is um, someone who dies and has no relatives to bury them. So previously we we're talking about your involvement in the burial of somebody who will anyway get buried. Now we're talking about the question of whether, in the same circumstance, but the consequence will not be that you won't be involved in the burial. The consequence will be the person won't be buried. So there, like So the word lachoto teaches you that it's only for relatives. But for non-relatives whom you have an obligation to bury, which we call a mit mitzvah, then you have to stop. Right? You have to stop and become tamei, even though that will prevent you from bringing your korban pesach. You have to stop and bury them. Let's say even if that means that the circumcision will be delayed till the ninth day. Okay. So the Gemara says, "Amai lema in So for our purposes, what we're going to interpret this to mean is, in some way, the burial. Right, the, the burial is a is a fulfillment of Kvodabriot. It's the ultimate fulfillment of Kvodabriot. Leaving human body unburied is a, right is an ultimate violation of human dignity. Right? So it's another form of it's another form of kavod, but we're going to equate them. And therefore, what we're saying here is that the burial of a mate mitzvah, which is a fulfillment of kavod, enables you to not fulfill your other halachic obligations. Yeah. It's called a mate mitzvah. Like it, 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 yeah. <laughs> and it's derived from, uh, right? The, the kind of mate mitzvah is derived from that you're, right, you're not allowed to leave a, you know, an executed criminal hanging. Right? You have to bury them. 
it doesn't seem like the, like the case. This doesn't seem like a paradigm of the case of value versus qualifier. Yeah. So what it means is that we break the sugya down. This right, the, the the fiction of the sugya breaks down, and we're actually we're not interested in the theological question. We're interested in right. Granted that we have lots of discretion in terms of our interpretation of halacha. How much value should we give kvot in creating halacha? Right, that's really right. That's that's really what the stakes of the sugya have been all the way through, and we quote this last. Even though, if you were to ask me, what is the source for all human dignity playing a role in halacha? The answer is this: Meit Mitzvah is the Meit Mitzvah is the paradigm for right in all for all of. Right, if you ask, like, where do we get the idea that the Torah cares about dignity? The answer is the Torah says you have to bury the dead. Why do you bury the dead? Because burying because the dead body is somehow considered to be an um, a uh, right a representation of God. Right, the extreme version you have um, you have um, you know, the parable of the uh, of the twins, um, right? One 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 of whom becomes king, one of whom becomes a robber, and the robber is captured and 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 uh, crucified, and the king says, "Take him down," because people will say the king is hanging there. Right? And the right the metaphor is that the metaphor is that when even that you know, is that having human being displayed uh, grotesquely is a denigration of, of God because human beings are the same, are same little kin. A whole separate debate about whether that implies any some kind of you know, image of God in a literal sense or not. Uh, Menachem Lorberbaum built his book off a claim, I think, that it does. I don't think so, but um, but yeah, I think you're entirely right that this line just blows up the sugya. Uh, it makes it clear that we never thought that the issue was whether we allow um, values that are independently derived to contradict values we derive from God. The real question is. In the hierarchy of values we get from God, what role does human dignity play in that? Okay, then the, the Gemara is going to answer it by saying, "Well, you know what? No, Shani Hatan to right? You know, it's the same answer. Oh, maybe we'll make that case exceptional, right? So that you can't learn anything from that case, and that way we'll still we'll be left with our complete incoherence of, you know, like nothing has any power against God except when God is talking about money. And so here too, we're going to say, "Really, Gemara Mina, let's. Why don't we derive from this that?" That human dignity always triumphs over halacha, and the answer is nope. It's different here because here we're not telling you to violate the halacha; we're telling you to not do something that halacha tells you to do. Even though it's a case where halacha punishes you for not doing it, you get karet for not bringing your korban pesach. You get karet for not bringing, for not bringing your, for not for not circumcising your son. But we're not telling you to actively violate halacha; we're telling you to passively. Allow, right, allow an obligation to pass. So the end of the sugya apparently is that right, our, our equation is halacha deoraita, which is active, which is active and assuming that these are additive, right? There are people who think they're not additive, they're alternatives, but let's assume they're additive, right? So halacha deoraita, which relates to ritual and requires and right, um, is tri- triumphs kutabriot if you would have to actively violate it, but not if you only have to passively violate it. Now that has nothing to do with the equation and So we're left with nothing coherent at all. And the question is, what are we supposed to do with this circuit? Uh, right, if it leaves us, if it leaves us with nothing, with nothing coherent at all. Okay, so we'll take that up next time. And then we'll try and get to the reason, right? How that one reason reads the Gemara and how it plays out. Thank you very much for uh, for coming. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's just another note, basically saying.